Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and as you might be able to tell, I'm recording this from my COVID-19 bunker, which is not a euphemism for my vagina. I am joined by the wonder of a three-way Skype call by... I'm Hannah Dunleavy and my hands are drier than a Mormon wedding. Yeah, it's all getting a bit crispy in the palms area, isn't it? I predict yeah. this is going to be the next panic buy is hand moisturiser because, I mean, I look like a lizard. My um, <laughs> The skin on my knuckles has actually cracked now. And then today I burnt my knuckle while I was making some toast. So that was unwelcome, to be <laughs> honest. They weren't at their best anyway. And you've just added damage. And I'm Jen Offord and I'm wondering how often it's appropriate to wash your hair when you see no other humans ever. I'm going with never. What do you guys think? I think I absolutely agree. Awesome. I mean, I keep I keep feeling like I should remind people of the fact that yes, I have currently been shut into my house for five days, but I've gone longer than that just because I'm antisocial. <laughs> I just leave it, Jen. Leave the hair. I am. I'm glad you both think I'll be on the right side of history. But um... <laughs> <laughs> so, as Mick mentioned, we're recording in a different way this week. That's because. Our regular studio is closed for several weeks, so we've decided to take the opportunity to socially distance ourselves. We're not doctors, and you ab- <laughs> you absolutely feel free to do you. But we think the most useful thing we can do in this situation is not to spread this around. Unfortunately, you may notice a slight dip in sound quality, but on the plus side, our aim is to be here every week attempting to raise your spirits. Like when Offred found Oprah's pirate radio station in the Hamade's Tell. But maybe like 7% less exciting than that. You get a podcast and you get a podcast. <laughs> you get a podcast. Later on, I chat to Liz Buckley about the joy for hearts, souls, minds and disco pumps that are the Pet Shop Boys. Author Claire Allen tells us what books she thinks we should tuck into while we're all rattling around the house. In Journey Off the Blocks, I'm talking about those massively unskilled footballers in the US Women's National Football, sorry, soccer team. Sorry for the accent. So, so unskilled. I so know. unskilled. Rubbish. And ever wonder what Gladiator would have looked like with a volcano in it? Nope. Sure. They wonder no longer because in this week's Dunleavy Does Disaster, we watch Pompeii. You say nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> but first, cat wrangling the over 70s. Gen X Solidarity and Apples for All. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Jesus F. Christ. Now, every generation is said to have its war, be that metaphorical or in many cases real. Except it seems Generation X, of which we are a part. Until now, that is, when our war has just become very clear to us. It's going to be keeping our parents inside for four fucking months. Health Secretary Matt Hancock said in response to a question at the weekend that the over-70s will, at some point soon, be quarantined in their own properties or in care homes for up to 16 weeks in a bid to protect them and the NHS from coronavirus. If you've ever looked at a crowd at the Edinburgh Tattoo and thought, I wonder what the exact opposite of that is, we are about to find out. Keeping the olds indoors is something 
my family, friends, and seemingly most of Twitter has been trying to do to no avail for more than a week. Appeals to parents to self-isolate, anecdotal evidence suggests, are being met with replies such as, but I only went to the post office, the supermarket, and the World Sneezing Championships, <laughs> and then the after party where I shared a cigarette with the Italian team. Don't be so melodramatic. <laughs> Boris Johnson had undone a lot of good work, including my own, when he said last Thursday that old people should still go out, lest they be at risk of loneliness. And while I'll get to the very real issue of loneliness in a bit, it was a dangerous statement as it appeared to offer two alternatives, being lonely and not being lonely, as opposed to being lonely and being infected with a virus that could kill you. I have 14 relatives over the age of 70. I absolutely understand the dangers of loneliness in elderly people. There are also serious implications for anyone in an abusive relationship, something that's not talked about much, but is absolutely a thing. How we can actually support a generation of pensioners just itching to get back to the garden centre or church or their grandkids is the big question. Although how we enforce what amounts to a curfew on nine million people is obviously another. I mean, I'm desperate to keep my mum safe from infection, but I'm not sure I'd go so far as to taser her. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> although more news as we have it but what I, really want to... <laughs> I said stay in the house Mary <laughs> but what I really want to say here is when Generation X gets its wish and its parents become legally bound to listen to us we've got to be in it with them for the long haul yes that means making sure they're fed and up to date with medicine or that their dog is walked or their bins are put out But it also means we need to phone them every day if necessary. We need to Skype them. We possibly need to teach them to use Skype first. Good luck with that, my brother. But hey, this is what we ask them to do. It's the least we can do in return. Absolutely. I did teach my mum to Skype. But when I ask her if she wants to Skype, she goes, oh, okay." I'm like, we don't have to. And she's like, oh, no, it's fine. And it turns out that she's done something to a computer, which means she always appears upside down. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my mum has a, um, like a, it's not an iPad, it's whatever, that's not Apple. A tablet. A tablet. And the most significant event of her using her tablet was when we were going through customs at Boston Airport. And somebody said, if you've got any tablets, can you get it out of your bag now? And I said to my mum, oh, that's you. And she got all her pills out and put them on the conveyor. (laughs) Ah, mothers. Prime Minister Boris Johnson was feeling the heat quite a bit last week and not because of a temperature or chesty cough. Though with his cabinet now infected and ironically it was his health ministers who were the first to go, well, who knows? Nadine Dorries is fine, by the way, just in case you were wondering. Uh, I was just about to ask that. Yeah, of course you were. I believe you. <laughs> Thousands wouldn't. First up was his coronavirus action plan, which some thought was on the casual side, ever-changing, and seemingly out of sync with the rest of the world. But I'm not a scientist. No, really. What? I know. So I really can't go into the merits of one plan versus another. I would say, however, that it's not a great reflection of general trust in the PM that almost every business across the land screamed in response, fuck that, go home, everyone, go home now. (laughs) 
In the days that followed, more and more companies and organisations seemed to take charge of the situation, with supermarkets, actually just one so far that I've seen, Aldi, well done Aldi, stating that customers would only be able to buy so many of one particular product. Uh, uh, my local one-stop shop has signs up that say that you can't buy a shitload of pasta. They've applied this to everything. You can't buy more than four of any particular thing is the rule that Aldi have put oh, in place. So well done, Aldi. Also, renowned shunners of money, the Premier League, yeah. have postponed all of their matches until at least April, as has the rest of you know the English Football League as well. Oh, and uh, yeah, Sir Richard Branson asked the government to find somewhere in the region of £7.5 billion to bail out the aviation industry because his company, Virgin Atlantic owned by Virgin Group Holdings, which is registered in the British Virgin Islands, by the way, is really going to suffer, apparently. Yeah, apparently he has asked his 8,500 airline staff to take up to eight weeks' unpaid leave because he's clearly worried that his £4 billion net worth isn't going to cover... Well, I don't know. What does he spend it on? The ability to lift up ladies in photos... (laughs) And like really dodgy necklaces from the 90s. Yeah, he's your scientist. He is. He's absolutely who I'm thinking of when I came (laughs) up with that. As I said earlier, I mean, say what you like about Michael O'Leary. He's open to admitting that he's a cunt. It does actually make it marginally better. No, it makes it marginally better. Also, he looks like Noel Edmonds, doesn't he? Not him. Branson, I mean. They both definitely look like they've, they've been for a recent blow dry. Mr. Tumless-esque yeah. is, <laughs> is the vibe. I'm getting just going, No, more fluff. It needs more fluff. <laughs> Fluffier. Secondly was the way in which the government's action plan was communicated or not. Despite levelling with the British public earlier in the week that more fatalities should be expected, updated plans, such as those Hannah's just been talking about, first emerged, attributed to anonymous government sources and tweeted by favoured journalists. That's my favourite way to receive important information. <laughs> Robert Pesson. Absolutely. He's, that's where I want to hear all the important things. Uh, I've been asking him how my mum's doing. It seems silly just to go straight to her. <laughs> A more detailed article about the same plans was written by Matt Hancock and published in The Telegraph, i.e. behind a paywall, rather than by, oh, I don't know, National Broadcaster, the BBC. After the government was criticised for its approach and the lack of clarity it provided, it was announced late on Sunday that Number 10 would hold daily press briefings to ensure the public had access to -to up-to-date and clear information on how to best protect themselves. Uh, Just for the sake of fairness and who wants to be fair, but the Telegraph did take that paywall down eventually. When I actually read it, which was not that long after it was published, to be fair, it wasn't behind a paywall. While we're on the subject of responsible journalism, it's worth mentioning that The Guardian published details of a leaked document on Sunday suggesting that the government expected as many as 80% of the population to be infected with COVID-19 in the coming months, with up to 15% requiring hospitalisation. Now, as someone who used to write government impact assessments, this does not mean the government expects 80% of the population to be infected, It means, in a worst-case scenario, this is possible. Impact assessments always cover best, worst, and somewhere in the middle-case scenarios, so this should not inspire panic, despite sounding pretty terrifying. Mm -hmm. 
But um, if you were terrified, because I think some people really are, not to worry, because the government also made a rallying call on Sunday to manufacturers everywhere to start knocking together the odd ventilator or two to help get the NHS primed and ready for action. I feel reassured. Emphasis on odd there, I think. Yeah. I don't know. Do you feel reassured, guys? What, what do you think? I, I don't feel reassured. No. I'm going to put that out there. And I don't think daily press conferences from Boris Johnson are going to make that feeling any better. On a slight note of joy, my favourite story about the coronavirus that came out over the weekend, don't know if you saw this, but Liam Gallagher thought that he'd got the virus. Turns out his, his house was just a bit hot. Yeah. Lovely. He had his heating up. <laughs> I saw someone tweet a picture of him in one of his famous Parker jackets and said, take your fucking coat off then. <laughs> I, I saw a story that made me smile about Wuhan, which has been under forcible house, people have been under forcible house arrest. That I, I mean, this is probably apocryphal. I saw it on Twitter, it made me smile. But they said that 88 couples had immediately come out from under house arrest and applied for divorce. <laughs> Okay, okay, let's move away from the virus and look at the splashy, flashy show that is Rookie Chancellor Rishi Sunak's inaugural budget. It is Johnsonian in its largesse. Money for everyone! Let's get things done! This all looks great on a bus! But is it like RPM? All talk and no trousers. Well, yes and no. Understandably, Sunak focused heavily on the coronavirus and its effects, promising a £30 billion package to boost the economy and get the country through the outbreak, with £12 billion specifically targeted at coronavirus measures, including at least £5 billion for the NHS in England and £7 billion for business and workers across the UK. I mean, good. That, that's good, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Magic what... Money Tree. <laughs> yeah. Because while I'm not one to question anyone's grasp of maths, especially not the Chancellor's, it is very much a splash the cash budget. But if Rishi has 175 billion apples across five years and only 25 billion of those apples are tax apples, where the fuck are all the other apples coming from? <laughs> and why did George and Sajid constantly tell us there weren't enough apples? Ah, it turns out the notion that public spending might boost the economy is back, which, well... It almost feels like the government could have ditched austerity measures and therefore saved many, many lives a whole lot sooner. But what an adventure. So that's apples for everyone out of the way, because this budget also has a coming stain in that it doesn't give a fuck about the most vulnerable. Old people, people below the poverty line, they're, well, they're not great for the economy, are they? Social care didn't get a mention and local councils the force on the ground helping communities barely get a sniff with power very much returning to Westminster these apples are treasury apples to be handed out as Rishi Johnson and Cummings see fit okay I'm going to stop talking about apples now what about the budget's impact on women so I'm going to pass this one over to Sophie Walker CEO of the Young Women's Trust which works to achieve economic justice for young women she said, a budget that makes no mention of childcare or social care is not a budget that is serious about investing in the lives of women who are regularly pushed into doing this work on low or no pay. A £27 billion windfall for tarmac is a kick in the teeth for the millions of women caring for children and adults who will carry the burden of additional care as the coronavirus spreads 
while juggling perilous part-time contracts, low wages, and unfair benefits system. Well said, Sophie. Mm. Agreed. So, if you're wondering what you can do to help people in a worse situation than yourself, here are some ideas. Journalist Sally Hughes, who runs Beauty Banks, is looking for donations to make sure they can help people unable to afford to stockpile to continue to access hygiene and sanitary products. You can find Sally on Twitter at Sally Hughes. Sally spells her name S-A-L-I. Travel restrictions will undoubtedly affect the sterling work of the abortion support network. You can help Mara and her team find ways to continue helping women in need by making a donation. You can find them at asn.org.uk. For anyone in the arts affected by a loss of salary, the brilliant Bryony Kimmings is looking into a scheme to help financially. You can DM her on Twitter if you need help or if you can help, where you can find her at at Bryony Kimmings. And lastly, if you regularly use the services of a self-employed person or a small business owner, a hairdresser, a driving instructor, a gardener, a nail salon, and you have to cancel your appointment, you could think about paying for it and taking the service in a few months' time. It's going to be an absolutely brutal time for the self-employed. And if we can help mitigate their losses by spreading that financial hit over a long period of time, we should even if it's just to ensure that they are still in business next time we all need a haircut. Yes, well said. Good news, anyone? Oh, God. Yes, please. Yeah, is there any, Mick? <laughs> well, I am, in fact, returning to the budget to welcome the scrapping, finally, of the tampon tax. Yep, as of January 2021, the 5% VAT on period products is no more. We're just going to have to find other ways to get our luxury items fixed. Does it feel like a cynical move from the government? Well, yeah, obviously. And so it's worth mentioning the Women's Resource Centre's excellent payback the tampon tax campaign. In 2015, the money collected from VAT on period products was pledged for women's health and support charities. Did that happen? Of course it fucking didn't. So you can join in the fight for the government to honour its promise by visiting wrc.org.uk. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where the following news will shock absolutely no one. The web is not working for women and girls. Yep, so says inventor of the World Wide Web, a.k.a. the internet, Sir Tim Berners-Lee. In an open letter to mark the web's 31st birthday, and can we just take a moment to let the fact that the internet is only 31 sink in? Berners-Lee said... The world has made important progress on gender equality thanks to the unceasing drive of committed champions everywhere. But he was seriously concerned that online harms facing women and girls, especially those of colour, from LGBTQ plus communities and other marginalised groups, threaten that progress. And Berners-Lee highlights three areas needing attention. Number one, access. There's a digital divide that keeps more than half the world's women offline. In case you're wondering, there are substantially more men able to access the web. Number two, online safety. According to a survey by Berners-Lee's Web Foundation, more than half of young women have experienced violence online, including sexual harassment, threatening messages and having private images shared without consent. And that is not a problem that is getting any better. Number three, badly designed AI repeats and exacerbates discrimination. The result? Women's rights defenders and female journalists were targeted for abuse more than most. 
The coronavirus outbreak will have more of us living on the internet than ever before. And Berners-Lee is calling on governments and companies to tackle online abuse as a top priority this year. Yeah, I mean, it's always worth saying with Tim Berners-Lee, if he hadn't invented the internet, people on Twitter try and teach him things about the internet, which is always one of the most joyful things ever. I love that when that happens to uh, people who clearly have all the knowledge. Yeah. And someone goes, oh, yeah, well, have you even read it? And they're like, well, I wrote it. Yeah, uh, like when someone said to David uh, Simon, uh, have you ever seen The Wire, mate? <laughs> he was like, no. <laughs> Hello, I am joined by label manager of Ace Records and our very own music guru, Liz Buckley. Liz, hello. Hello, how Thanks. are you? I'm all right, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. We're gonna we're gonna talk about some men. We are, which is a first actually. It's the first time I've chosen men to talk about as a specialist topic. So which, well done, men. I mean, well, sometimes you've just got to give the white man some credit. <laughs> They're clearly a niche, the underdog, a niche in the music business. <laughs> which men to, are we to, talking about? To boys, the pet shop boys. The pet shop boys. <laughs> so they're still quite young. <laughs> little, little darlings. Little darlings. I mean, I was really touched when you suggested the Pet Shop Boys. They've got a new album out, Hotspot, which obviously we're going to talk about, and they're about to go on a Greatest Hits tour, which starts in arenas on May the 28th and runs through till June the 6th. But the Pet Shop Boys are incredible. And I mean, they've been knocking around for 150 years now. (laughs) Yes, you have your facts correct. Uh, Actually, it's their 35th anniversary of their first hit single, I think, this year. And next year is their 40th anniversary of being together. Yeah. They, they're one of those bands where everyone likes throwing facts about, you know, especially as they've got that history behind them now so people can kind of go see you've sold. Hang on, let me just look. 50 million records? Because I heard them correct somebody the other day and they said 100 million records and that's not correct apparently. And I really like the modesty of that. Oh no, it's half what you think, but it's still an incredible amount of records. It's only 50 million yeah. more records <laughs> yeah. than I've sold. <laughs> They're on their 14th studio album, 17th top 10 UK album, including remix albums and so forth. So, yes, they're stalwarts of the pop electro scene. And basically, they're lovely. I just thought it'd be a nice thing to choose because who doesn't like the Pet Shop Boys? And we're, we're in troubling times, you know, there's a lot of woe and worry around. And the Pet Shop Boys coming back made me quite weepy because you're like, oh, I've missed, I've missed the niceness. Yeah, they're like a big synth hog. Oh, God. Oh, God, I've missed them. <laughs> So why do you think they are so enduring? They're basically a national institution now. Uh, yes. Well, they, they know how to change. Every album has a kind of theme. This one is part of a trilogy, which I believe Neil just announced and everyone went with. <laughs> OK. Well, if Neil Tennant says it's true, exactly. it true. I think Chris was a bit bewildered by that. But on the <laughs> They recorded this at Hansa in Berlin with Stuart Price from Labour Rhythm Digital, who's their sort of regular producer, and rather handily, I think, the husband of their manager. So that works quite well. And they've got a studio in Berlin, which I think helps the album feel very... You said not, they're not very Brexity. <laughs> they're very European. Incredibly European. Um, but the, I think they're also quintessentially British, so it's the two things married together. You know, like um, Neil's from Newcastle, Chris is from Blackpool, but actually they sound incredibly posh. They sound really, really English, and yet they sort of marry that with, you know, uh, Italian electro-pop and 
Georgia Maroda and they, then they have sort of like lyrics that are like common tallyroo and all this kind of thing you know like they mix all sorts of European influences and being in Berlin the first song on this new album uh, One of the Wisp is about being on the U-Bahn in Berlin and just sort of watching the world go by looking at the lakes yeah there's a sort of very inclusiveness to the Pet Shop Boys and they're never cruel and they're always quite subtle I feel there's also a sort of um, mystery to them which, considering how long they've been going, I think is quite unique, really. There's a very private aspect to the Pet Shop Boys. So you feel like you know them, but you wish you knew them better. Yeah. And I remember Neil said years ago that it was like a conspiracy between two people, and I thought that was a beautiful way of putting it, because you just think, I bet the chats they have are fucking amazing, and I wish I'd ever heard one of them, you know? I imagine they just have a shortened language with each other. They just sort of know where the other one's going. Yeah. To have a friendship for that long when you're working together is yeah, incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And they always say they're friends first and musicians second. And actually, Chris Lowe has been doing a lot of the interviews with Neil for the circuit to promote this new album. And it's really lovely to see them together because, like, Chris still says less than Neil, of course, but he's really jokey and, you know, the sort of rapport between them is obviously brilliant. But um, there's a lovely sort of thing where, like, someone will say to Neil, describe Chris, and Chris will sit there with his hand over his mouth. <laughs> it's like, oh, you speak on my behalf, like an old married couple, really. It's like, you know me better, so you may as well answer that one. But actually, Chris has been brilliant at sort of chipping in and having, you know, a nice topper on things and that, chipping in as well. So it's nice to see him sort of a bit more relaxed. When they first started and they were doing sort of top of the pops and stuff, Neil was saying things like, uh, Chris used to say, whatever you do, don't look delighted. <laughs> and that was I don't sort of... think I've ever seen Chris Lowe look delighted. <laughs> but that's part of the stick, isn't it? You know, they have this euphoric music and actually they both just stand stock still looking very glum. And the Pet Shop Boys have that wonderful high-energy electro rush and it's very yeah it's euphoric but at the same time they have a real melancholy which is very british that sort of sadness that runs all the way through it and they're very very human so even though it's electronic music neil tennant's voice is incredibly distinctive you everybody would know him anywhere and somewhere that chris said that he sings like julie andrews (laughs) (laughs) i think they were talking about how old-fashioned they are Which is really lovely because, you know, then you get Liza Minnelli kind of going, I want to work with those guys or whatever, because she thinks they'll know follies. So, yeah, there is that sort of old-fashionedness about them, but at the same time they will have lasers and people larging it at the Royal Opera House. So there's a wonderful sort of mix. You mentioned the, the Britishness, and obviously I said at the top that they're playing arenas, but they've been the underdog as well. So, like, back in 2002... No one was going to their gigs anymore. They they kind of had been at the peak and then like right back down at the bottom of that mountain. And they are quite deservedly, I think, back on top spot. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, they're doing Greatest Hits tour and they're doing one after the other. What better way of proving how well-loved and deserved what they currently have is? I think they did have a bit of a bad patch. I remember Neil saying something about playing to nobody in Grimsby once, but... I I wasn't going to mention it. (laughs) But I think it just shows how amazing it is that their music seems like... I think you have to be pretty churlish not to like the Pet Shop Boys, no matter what you think your taste in music is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, who wouldn't? I'd be very questionable about anybody that said they didn't. (laughs) And there's a sort of charming politeness to them as well, which I absolutely love. Like, you know, you know a Pet Shop Boys song title when you hear it. So they have this sort of wordiness, but also amazing manners. So every song is sort of like 
left to my own devices or it couldn't happen here or, or what have I done to deserve this I wouldn't normally do this kind of thing you know it's just it's just so oh god excuse me I'm so know? sorry I didn't realize you hadn't locked the door <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm terribly sorry I've written a hit single <laughs> that sort of mix of melancholy and happiness as well I, I think I've had uh, uh, domino dancing in my head for months now just knowing they were coming back and there's a lovely story that Chris tells about the phrase came up, Domino Dancing, even though it's an incredibly sad song because it's basically about HIV, watch them all fall down. It's, it's, it's a really, it's a very sad song. But then I saw Chris Lowe say that he coined the phrase Domino Dancing because he literally used to play dominoes and he played his mate and every time his mate won, he'd do this annoying sort of victory bop. And he's like, <laughs> Domino Dancing to him was his mate going, I fucking beat you at dominoes, you <laughs> know? I mean, Chris Lowe uh, grew up like being a barman in a conservative club bar and Blackpool Pier and all that sort of thing. So there is this sort of like real old geezer thing about him as well as, you know, the sort of electro pop gay dance classic side to them as well. They are like Enigma wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in a, how the hell did this happen? <laughs> Which is also one of their song titles. Yeah. Right? yeah. It could be. They, well, yeah, they are a mel- um, mix of contradictions. I mean, they interview very well, but they hate talking, you know, all that kind of thing. They're incredibly private and yet they're really witty. But that's what makes them so lovable, I think. The sort of discomfort and the politeness of it all, you know, like. There is a sort of gentle politics there, but it's also kind of quite clear if you choose to look for Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. But, um, you know, like when they did The Streets Have No Name, but then it kind of goes into Can't Take My Eyes Off Of You, that sort of medley thing they do with Frankie Valli song. And it's sort of, they're basically going, you two song sounds a bit like this. (laughs) And also taking the piss out of rock, but also so cutely that I imagine you two were very flattered. So (laughs) there's a kind streaked uh, whatever they're trying to say i think that's it that's it you have to warm to them i find it hard to believe that anyone wouldn't warm to them would you warm to the new album though so hotspot came out in january what do you make of it liz oh i love it it's great isn't it <laughs> it's really great monkey business made me laugh out loud just playing around yeah apparently somebody said that to him when he was in austin texas i'm not sure if he was at the festival or not but he somebody said oh my god petra boys what are you doing here and he said well what are you doing here and the guy went monkey business <laughs> just playing around and he thought thank you very much <laughs> that sounds like a perfect song <laughs> exactly. and what i'd like to do is take this back to the past <laughs> The power of disco, because that song is very much about the power of disco. <laughs> Actually, that was a nice thing that because they've got they always have so many projects going on, don't they? So they they have a cabaret kind of show that's on at the Leicester Square Theatre. They had to write old songs for that. It was sort of like, how do we write songs that sound like the past? Because you know the, the whole story about the woman that it revolves around had hits in the past, so they then have to write songs that suit that. So mm-hmm. there is a timeless quality to their songs, though I think to, to the way they put stuff together. Yes, and also, even though they have a real sound that's very distinctive, mm-hmm. they never stop moving forward, I think, as well. But without it ever being crowbarred in or we've suddenly bought a vocoder or something, you know, <laughs> they know the essence of themselves and they never stray too far away. So even though they might have an album that's a bit rockier, you know, they've got Johnny Marr playing quite heavily on one or whatever, and they've got definitely sort of like slightly more out there ones or, you know, they've got very with Go West and sort of big disco classics or whatever. They never stray that far. And I said one of the wonderful things about Stuart Pearce producing them is he 
knows what the Pet Shop Boys should sound like. So if they actually stray too far from that, he'll be like, no, <laughs> and rein them back in again so that they never become novelty or, you know, out of their age bracket even. You know, there's a certain dignity to it all. Mm-hmm. What is your favourite song off of Hotspot? I really like Will of the Wisp, which mm. is... Um, the opening track, it's brilliant. Yeah, it? I like the fact... I, I like sort of like little... Not in jokes, that's not quite right, but I like little references to things. And I like the fact they've opened an album with a song about a train, which divided by a zero is also the, a song about a train that opens their debut album. And I thought that might be a nice little nod to that. And that I, I don't know if that's true, but that's what I felt. I was like, oh, train song, Pet Shop Boys. That kind of brings in the nostalgia thing where you're like, oh, miss those guys. But I, I like how... Neilish that song is because it's very romantic it's about seeing an old crush of yours and wondering what they're doing now you know like he used to be sort of a bit hedonistic clubber you know I wonder if he's settled down and he's boring now and also he Neil said that he's brought into it uh, that he imagined it was Christopher Isherwood thinking that so the sort of bookishness as well wow. so I, I think it's got lots and lots of Pet Shop Boys elements to it where they have the sort of sort of contemplative ballads alongside the bangers you know <laughs> they know how to make an album as a whole yeah. you know which is a bit of a dying art actually in the age of spotify and shuffle and stuff so i really like the fact that hot spot feels like i don't know if i would count it as part of a trilogy obviously we've been told it is but i, mean, I like the fact it's an album in, it, in itself and it feels like it's complete and shouldn't be played out of order and all that kind of thing Imagine a world where a person hasn't heard of the Pet Shop Boys list. <laughs> I know it's crazy, but there's a lot of crazy stuff out in the world right now. How would you sum up the Pet Shop Boys? Okay, well, I won't, I won't do it in my own words. I'll do it in their words. Okay. And they can have... Can you do it in their voices? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish I could. I love the way Neil talks, particularly. The, the, Neil said they were the Smiths that you could dance to. I really like that. <laughs> And Chris said at the end of an interview, I think he was on Graham Norton or something, it's a, the press they've been doing for this album is just brilliant because they've done stuff like Front Row, but they've also done like Loose Women, you know, <laughs> and on the one show and the TV awards and they're all over the place. I kind of love the fact that they're just completely across all different types of cultures and they're for everybody. But Chris, at the end of something or other I heard him on, he was asked... How would you sum up your career? You know, how do you feel about all this? And he said, it's a bit odd, actually. It's not what you expect to happen. <laughs> and that is the Petra Boys. And indeed, probably a new song title. <laughs> Liz, thank you so much. I'm going to leave it now so I can go and listen to Hotspot again. <laughs> monkey really business. Good. We're going to listen to some monkey business and drink some wine. And drink some wine, yes. Hey there you lot. If you want to follow every aspect of our lives on social media, and why wouldn't you because you're only human, you can! We're on Twitter as a team at Standard Issue UK or individually on at Inspiragen, at That Dunleavy and at Mixter Noonan and I'd like to think it'll be fairly obvious who's who. We're on Facebook as well at Standard Issue Magazine and even Instagram at Standard Issue Podcast. Come to us, look at our faces. Hello, I am joined on the phone by author Claire Allen slash Freya Kennedy. Genre fluid is how <laughs> That's very that's Very exciting. You are over in Derry as we were just discussing discussing off mic it's all go in northern ireland as well 
It is. It's it's just um, crazy. Obviously, Derry is exactly on the border with with the Republic of Ireland. Um, five miles away from my house, I would be in the south. So the South has put in all these restrictions, the North hasn't, so a lot of businesses, schools, everything taking matters under their own hands and for I suppose the last 24 hours in particular it's just been all the pubs closing, restaurants, cafes, um, schools, soft play areas, everything is just in total lockdown here at the moment. And as we're talking on Monday, tomorrow is St. Patrick's Day. It will be yesterday by the time this is on the podcast and it's going to be probably the quietest one you can ever remember. It is. I mean, normally they have a big parade here and, and the study has to do in a lot of studies and that was cancelled at the start of last week. But obviously the pubs were still sort of hanging on going. We have our usual crowds, but they they are all closed. And those that are staying open have cancelled St. Patrick's Night celebrations. So anything that has big scale has been planned to stop. So it's, you know, it's a very sensible move from them, but, it, you know, these companies are taking massive hits and it, you know it's, it's a bit it's a wee bit scary to be honest and very worrying for people because Derry's not a, a high wage economy anyway yeah um, but it's something I suppose we're all going to have to do over the next wee while yeah so we're all going to well I am basically decided I'm just going to stay in now because the most sensible thing I can do is not spread it around if I catch anything so I went through my bookshelf and I grabbed down a load of selections of books that I'd bought over the years or people have bought me that I never got round to reading. And I looked at the pile and on the top of it is uh, the autobiography of the American general slash president Ulysses S. Grant. So I realised that my taste in books isn't necessarily everybody else's. So I was <laughs> hoping that you might be able to give us some recommendations of things that people might be able to tuck into. I have compiled a lovely collection for you. Oh, that's and there are some of my favourite authors. And I've sort of tried to think about it in, in different genres, I suppose, for what moods we may go through during this time. And I suppose a lot of people are talking about what we can binge watch at the minute. Yeah. So I have my first pick really is a binge read. Um, so we've got, uh, there are currently eight books published in this series. And book nine is coming on April the 16th. So this is Jane Casey is a crime writer. She lives in London. She's from Dublin. And she writes um, a series, Maeve Kerrigan, is DS Maeve Kerrigan as her main character. The Place Procedurals. The first one's called The Burning. The one that's coming out next month is called The Cotton Place. And each one is better than the last. The character development across these books, I can't say how much I actually love them. I, I'm a total fan girl. I binge read them myself last summer. When I heard the new one was coming out, I was so excited. It was like the best thing ever. I got to be proof through the door. Each individual book has a brilliant crime story, obviously, running through it. But it really is the characters that run the whole way through the book and how she changes your perception of people. Maeve is a great lead character. It's great to see a female cop running the show. She's a great lead character, but she's also very flawed. So, um, but it's not, you know, tropey. It's not done in that kind of usual way. Um, and, and it can surprise you. And there is this lovely unresolved sexual tension thread running through the, all the books with one of her colleagues. Just, I'm actually in love with them now. <laughs> so I, I can't recommend it enough. Um, yes, they're crime books. But the thing about reading crime books in um, these strange times is that you kind of know the body's going to get got. Yeah. You? And, a sense of justice and everything coming back and so there is that relief that nice things can happen after terrible things so 
in my mind, crime is a perfect read at this time. Great. So definitely my first pick is Jean Casey. Well, we had an interesting conversation with Amelia Bullmore a couple of weeks ago, who writes crime fiction for TV, obviously, or crime drama for TV, about the sort of changing face of crime drama and how women are attempting to represent crime a bit more realistically in the sense of that victims should be treated like actual characters rather than, you know, just a body on the floor. Absolutely. And, and, I mean, that's something that so many female uh, crime writers are doing. Um, We all sort of, I suppose, people knew that we can't just have, you know, like the blonde body. Yeah. uh, That she was a prostitute or she was, you know, that those tropes are gone. Anybody can be a victim. We know that from real life. Crime doesn't uh, stick with one certain, you know, yeah. demographic. It, um, so why not keep it real and why not focus on the characters rather than on the sort of forensics of it? Yeah. Um, and that's what I love to read when I'm reading crime. I love to get really get into the heads of all the characters, be it the police officers, be it the villains. I love getting into the heads of the villains because I find that fascinating. Um, and getting into the heads of all the victims and survivors and family members as well. And I think that just makes absolutely compelling reading and compelling viewing as well. Um, and crime is the biggest selling genre at the minute. Yeah. So, you know, it's working. <laughs> Definitely. What's your second pick? My second pick now, I am going for a real pulling the heartstrings one. Because I think we all, maybe just, maybe we all have these emotions all bubbling up inside of us at the minute and we might need to let them out so we need to be cry. Yeah. Um, but we also need to feel uplifted by the end of it. So my second pick is um, a book by uh, an author called Anna McPartland. You may have read this one. It was, it's out a couple of years called The Last Days of Rabbit Hayes. I have heard of that. I have not read it. Oh my God. It is amazing. It is. It will break you into tiny pieces, but it will build you back up again. But there's so much humour in it as well, and I think that's what makes it work. Work. Um, it's called the last days of Rabbit Hayes. You know when you're going in. Rabbit Hayes is a character. She's a single mum. She has cancer. The book opens. She's going into the hospice. Her days are numbered. So you sort of know straight from going in that you're getting into a really sort of emotional read, but it's how her family um, react around her, her daughter. There's so much that uh, humour and support and her life story and where she's been and how she's got to where she is. And um, you really do feel, I really felt anyway reading it that I was sitting in that hospice room with that family and I was as invested in Rabbit's story as if she was somebody yeah. in, in my real life. There were times when I went, no, please, they have to find, they have to be able to save her. And, the, you know, really, 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 like, so emotionally pulled apart by this book. Um, but by the time you get to the end of it, you leave it tear-stained, very, very much tear-stained, but completely uplifted with this sense of positivity and this sense of a family's love and the strength of, of a family connection. And there is a, sequel coming out to this book in April called Below the Big Blue Sky and it picks up exactly where Rabbit leaves off and deals with the family afterwards and um, it's it's brilliant too so it, it's one of those It's it, I suppose it's along the lines of Jojo Moyes maybe for you or something like that yeah. real tearjerker but ultimately one that will make you sort of reevaluate all your relationships and your family 
I, w- I want to ask you, as a writer, when something like this happens that's happening now, does your brain inevitably go to, I want to set a book during this? You would think that it does, but I don't, I actually haven't gone there with this one. Um, I think maybe it's, maybe a wee bit too scary. Too, and we don't know how it's going to pan out yet. Too soon, um, yeah. Yeah, it's too soon. And we don't, um, you know, we don't know what it's going to be. But I mean, you, you can see that it is rife. I, I predict that in, you know, 18 months time, the bookshelves are going to be filled with, you know, locked room crimes people all stuck together in one space and yeah. it is a pressure cooker and something's going to to happen so it is um fodder for that but i think it's very much going to depend on how it plays out because yeah you know it might be too sensitive it might be everybody might go oh, that was a whole lot of fuss about nothing we don't know so um but yeah i mean it's, of course it fires stories in your head but i don't think i'm quite ready to yeah. There. Do you know yeah. I can remember when I watched when I watched Notre Dame burning, I thought if this burns to the ground, I'm gonna write a play about it. And then it didn't burn down. Like it I mean yeah. it, obviously it was damaged and I thought, Oh well that's the end of that. But yeah, new stories do fire up stuff, don't they? That you just think, Oh wow, like what a setting for that. But like exactly. you say, you need to know how it ends because You do, you, you yeah. need to know what I mean you're always mining everything for for a story. And I'm, I suppose I'm kind of probably like a lot of people hoping that in 12 months time ago well that was a whole load of fuss about nothing because everybody's taking the appropriate measures and it hasn't escalated you know so um but i i fully predict that we will see a a slew of of these kind of books hitting the shelves because we're starting to see now like the heat wave books that were written during the big heat wave of a year and a half ago so it it will happen everybody fancies themselves as tennessee williams do they now Uh That's it. Well, it's a perfect time. It's a perfect atmosphere. The weather's such a big factor in books and it really sets the tone. And Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Personally, I always think I'm way more likely to lose my temper when it's hot than I am at any other time. Oh, yeah, me too. Absolutely. And, and being menopausal doesn't uh, doesn't help matters. No, tell me about it, Claire. People keep asking me to check whether I've got a temperature. I've had a temperature for a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. Like, is it is it a hot flash or is it coronavirus? <laughs> we don't know. Okay, let's, don't know. let's carry on with your list. Well, this brings when I'm talking about um menopausal. This this brings me on to great segment rom com, ideal for angry menopausal women like myself. Um, Jane Fallon is a brilliant comedic writer. Yes, she is. Um, she writes brilliant. We use the word chiclet women's fiction, whatever way you want to describe it. But what's great about Jane is that mostly her protagonists are that little bit older, they've a little bit more life experience. And it's um most of them find themselves in relationships that are breaking down or they find out, you know, the husband's a bad or they're having to, you know, rebuild their lives in some way. But they're dealing with all the issues that, you know, people in their late thirties and forties and fifties, whatever, might have to deal with. And we don't see that portrayed an awful lot in fiction most popular fiction the protagonists are you know in their 20s and 30s yeah that bit of baggage on i know like i'm at a stage where i sort of think everything's settled and if my life was turned upside down at this stage you'd have to start again where would you go so her books sort of deal with that but um but in a really light-hearted humorous way and again you're uplifted by the end there's a wee bit of emotion there if you want to have a wee cry um one of hers that I read quite recently that I really, really related to the main character and was called My Sweet Revenge. Um, 
and the main character she just she could have been me a slightly larger lady and you know just very meek and quiet and she finds out that the husband's up to no good and she transforms herself but it's not done in that tropey way it's not done that you know suddenly all the way it melts off and yeah. she dies blonde and whatever it's done in a very very realistic way and she's looking in at herself and reevaluating who she is as a person as much as what she looks like on the outside yeah they remind so, me her books i haven't read many of them but they remind me of uh ann tyler because ann tyler does that as well yeah. that sort of woman who in her 40s slash early 50s maybe even who just says yeah. hang on what, what is what is this life i'm leading do i actually want yeah. to live it yeah I want I want to do something different, and I love it because it's just funny and feminist and and fiery, and it just shows you that we aren't invisible once yeah. we turn forty. Um, and unfortunately, women tend to be in in the media and books and TV and whatever else. So, go Jane, and yeah. it's a good, uplifting, lovely read. So that is my third recommendation, Great. and I'm going to move on from that to something a little bit different again. Do you like ghost stories? I do. Um, I, as a child, I was terrified of, of absolutely everything. I mean, even famously, the music in the Castrol GTX advert used to weird me out. Uh-huh. But so as an adult, I read scary stuff because I can now. I feel like I missed out for years and years. It took me yeah. until I would say probably 20 before I could tuck into a Stephen King without lying awake well, all I night. Like, I don't think I would read Stephen King yet. Oh, My really? daughter and she wants to read Stephen King nothing scares this child like, <laughs> I, I know I still get freaked out watching the Lost Boys and sure you know that's how bad I am but this there is an absolutely beautiful book but it has a real ghostly edge to it um and it is it actually did freak me out scared me quite a bit it's the writer Rowan Coleman she's an English author she writes things that are a little bit quirky and different and her latest book is called The Girl at the Window um, and it is set at Ponton Hall, which is where Emily Bronte is believed to have written Wuthering Heights. And it is the story of Trudy, whose mother loves there. She moves back to Ponton after losing her husband. But very ghostly things start to happen. And she starts to find little notes. And could they be from Emily? Are oh, I am, so, I am totally yeah. in with this book. <laughs> yeah. It, and, and, you know, um, Rowan is passionate about pond and she's passionate about Wuthering Heights I think most women tend to have this sort of passionate love or hate for Wuthering Heights you don't have a sort of in-between yeah. ground of it and I love it I can see it's very uh, very flawed as you know Heathcliff's a right baden but you know when I was 15 I thought it was just the best um so it it draws on uh, a lot of Emily's actual real life um things that happened to Emily Bronte but it has this ghostly element there is a child ghost children ghosts are the scariest ghosts aren't they absolutely yeah particularly if they're um, singing exactly you know <laughs> um, <laughs> oh viewer you couldn't see Claire's face then it was amazing yeah <laughs> it, it does it, it gives me the great and obviously the pond and hall there is like the little window which is called Kathy's window which is believed you know inspired Emily for yeah. the scene when Kathy tries to get so it's sort of a creepy setting anyway so add this brilliant storytelling power that, that Rowan has. Um, and, and it just makes for it's really gripping. There's loads of tension in it, but there's a love story flowing through it. And there's family dynamic there, like a dysfunctional mother-daughter relationship. So it has everything. And it's beautifully written. So really, you know, it is the perfect one to curl up. 
yeah with a blanket maybe don't put you know keep the lights up yeah. and, uh, during the daytime um but it is it's just a gorgeous read and I just Rowan is one of the best writers out there at the moment anyway and for my money so um I would I would definitely recommend that one moving on but sort of on a similar theme we're talking things that happened a long time ago and a little bit of his, historical fiction yeah. Stacey Halls uh, wrote The Familiars which yes. I absolutely loved um, she has a new one out now called The Foundling which is great um, as well but The Familiars for me if, I think I was probably the last person in the world to read it perhaps um, but it looks uh, in the 17th century at the sort of the witch scares that went through England at the time. And that's something I don't know for some reason when I read about that, it makes me feel really, really, really like uncomfortable, like yeah. proper skin. I think just because you see how much if a woman was different or outspoken or looked differently, she could be branded a witch. Yeah. And I think the, the tagline for that book is something like, you know, the most, dangerous thing to be in the 17th century was a woman yeah women who are involved in midwifery all those caring professions they maybe would have come in for accusations more than most and Stacey tells this story through the familiars through um a 17 year old who is married and is on her fourth pregnancy wowzers um but hasn't produced a live child um and believes there might be yeah (laughs) she's getting these calls on her um they believe maybe she might be cursed. We don't know. She meets this lady who is a midwife. The midwife comes into care for her, and obviously the pregnancy sort of blossoms. And then, of course, maybe it's the midwife a witch. Um, and it's you know how you have to play to society's rules yeah. to avoid you know accusations. And there's things going on in the background, and it and it's very very tense. It's absolutely gripping. It's one of those. It's a real real page turner, and you're so invested. Both and Fleetwood, who you're thinking, oh my God, she's 17 and she's making all these big life decisions because um, that's the way the world was then. Um, but also really, really highlights how, how rough women had it and how those witch trials were, that the panic could just spread from yeah. one person's uh, words. And it just, it makes for a brilliant read. There's another book that's very similar. It's written quite a few years ago now. It was in quite a few, maybe eight or nine called The House Where It Happened and it's by Martina Devlin and that is based around the last witch trials in the UK which happened in near Carrickfergus in Northern Ireland again very similar type of thing one person points the finger and hysteria follows yeah Um, it's also a really really brilliant read so you know if, if you want to sort of say look it could be worse we could be living in those times <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's the attitude I came to you for, Claire. These are good things to go for. You know, sometimes it's good to remind ourselves, well, at least, you know, we're only fighting over Lou Roll here. Absolutely, yeah. Take the Pollyanna approach. That's it. And the final book that I want to recommend, this this will come to no surprise to anybody that knows me, uh, Hannah, and I imagine that uh, this person will be on your list as well, our lovely Marion. Oh, Marion. I actually, Marianne, I'm not going to get up and walk over there and prove it, but I do have a Marion Keys book on my pile there, which I picked up at a charity shop. What is it called? Rachel. Rachel's Holiday. Rachel's Holiday. There you go. I picked it up at a charity shop and I've never read it. 
that was the first Mayan keys book actually I read. Oh, really? Um, I still remember where I bought it. I remember where I read it, and it was like 25 years ago or something, and it just completely opened my eyes saying, oh, we can actually write real funny stuff that's realistic, and we can say these things and say bad words and have sex in our books, and it doesn't have to be all um, corsets and petticoats and whatever else. You know, it can just be real and honest and funny. Marion's been writing an awful long time. She is... Uh, amongst writers anyway she's certainly known as the queen of women's fiction and there's a reason she's known as that because she's constantly you know pushing the the boundaries with every single book um and she manages to write about very serious subjects with loads and loads of humor and realism um her latest book is just out it's called grown-ups um and it's around the casey family and it sort of looks at all their different, you know, all the different sort of brothers and sisters in there and their lives. I find I particularly related to the character of Jesse, who is like there trying to make sure everybody is organised all the time and everybody's grand and she doesn't want anybody to get into any bother. So she's fixing things always in the background and yeah. then starts to be a wee bit overwhelmed going, I'm fixing everybody who's fixing me. Um, and I think a lot of women find that, themselves... That rings um, a bell. <laughs> yeah. You know, that that's our nature. We're, we're, and that's what we're told from we're no age that we're supposed to do. is We're supposed to be the people that go and make everything better. And sometimes we want somebody to do it for us. Yeah. Um, so it's a, there's a different kind of tone to this book than Marion's previous books. She wrote it during a difficult time in her own life. Her father was very ill and passed away. And I think that kind of seriousness and grown-upness for want of saying a word that it doesn't even really exist um shines through on it and it's a very emotional read but there is enough on it to you know keep you really really entertained it, it's a great book and it's there's it's a good big meaty read and you could pass away a couple of days quite nicely just reminding yourself oh um and familiarizing yourself with one of the best female writers that we have around absolutely now, uh, Marion is a tremendous supporter of other women writers as well. So if Mary, if I had Marion on the phone, she would tell me to remind you to plug your own book here in this section. She would, she would. And, and she's been very good because she has actually endorsed it. She has read it. Um, my latest book is uh, The Liar's Daughter, and it's a thriller. And it is set in, in a house. There's a man, he has cancer, an elderly man, he has cancer, he's going to die. His daughter and stepdaughter are nursing him. And he does die, but perhaps not from the cancer. And I suppose it's a bit of a locked room. You know, there are five people in the in the house at the time that he dies. And you want to figure out who and why and what exactly happened to him. He's not a very nice person. And it was the hardest book to write. It does deal with child abuse, uh, historical child abuse. Um, it was very emotional to write but it was it was the one it is the book I'm most proud of now is is that under your name Claire Allen or is it a Freya Kennedy that is under Claire Allen and Freya Kennedy's first book is coming out in May and that's flip completely it's called The Hopes and Dreams of Libby Quinn and it is out and out rom-com set around uh, a woman who has decided to take a big chance with her life and it's opening her own bookshop and nobody dies, and it, there's there, there, there's there's no murders. Hooray! At all. No, yeah, <laughs> no. There's, there's lots of chocolate and 
books and lovely things and hunky barmen and it's really lovely to switch between genres because it means I can go really really dark with the thrillers but don't get bogged down in it because then I write quite lovely things so for my mental health it's great to be able to put on two hats as well absolutely oh this is terrific thank you so much Claire there's some great recommendations in there good luck over in Northern Ireland stay in touch with us and let us know how you are getting on if people want to follow you Claire where can they find you on Twitter they can find me on Twitter at Claire Allen, and Allen is A L L A N, because there is another Claire Allen, but she's not me. She, I mean, follow her, possibly, but she's not you. She's lovely. She is lovely. Follow her as well. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we... Um, yeah, fuck, what are we going to do for three months, guys? Well, as regular podcast listeners will know, this is the time of the week where we talk all things women's sport. But also, as you probably know by now, sport has basically been cancelled thanks to the coronavirus. So uh, tar for that, guys. My 12 weeks in solitary confinement looks bleaker than ever. But there are still some debates to be had, like, for example, what the fuck happens to the rest of the football season? Like, for everyone. Charlton Athletic, I'm sure you'll all be dying to know, are currently in the relegation zone of the championship, pending nine more matches of the season, and some frankly explosive scenes over at the Valley. So how are we going to finish the season? And what about the Euros in the summer? Well, big news just in, the men's Euros have been postponed until 2021. It's just been announced as I record this. But then what about the women's Euros next summer? Well, guys, I've got a regular sports section to fill here, so I'll probably come back to that next week. But one thing's for sure, no one really believes that the season will be up and running again by April the 3rd. Or the women's tennis tour, or the Six Nations, or anything really. These are truly mad times. So speaking of mad times, let's head stateside for a minute to talk about the US women's football team and how unskilled they all are. Their governing body's words, not mine. You might remember that the US women's football team launched legal action against its governing body over equal pay and that was filed by 28 of their players. So what do the governing body have to say in their defence of paying their male team, currently ranked 37th in the world, more than their female team, currently ranked number one in the world, lowest ever ranking second in the world, winners of four World Cups and indeed five Olympic gold medals? Well, let me tell you, the women's game is just a lot less skilled, apparently. No, really, that's what they said in their actual legal papers, that the men's game requires, and I quote, a higher level of skill based on speed and strength. Okay, so let's say that is true. Men's team are obviously not doing tremendously well at matching that level, are they? Oh, and they also bring in less money in ticket sales than the women's team do. More responsibility being a male footballer, though, right? That's what they're arguing anyway. Those fucking icons of the game. Can you name a member of the US men's team, incidentally? No. Could you name, on the other hand, I don't know, just to conjure up the names of a few 
sporting legends here. I don't know, Abby Wambach, Carly Lloyd, Hope Solo, Alex Morgan, maybe Ballon d'Or winner Megan Rapinoe. Not to do the men's team down, but looking at their current squad, I actually don't recognise one name on it. In fact, if you ask me to name an American football player, as in American the nation, not like, you know, the thing with the that's like rugby with with helmets. The only one I could immediately recall is Alexi Lalas, who retired from football 16 years ago and whose name I only know in the first place because he had a ridiculous beard and Badil and Skinner had an ongoing skit about him in the Fantasy World Cup in 1998. If you Google the US football team, in fact, it's the women's team that will come up first. Well, as you might imagine, it did not go down too well. In fact, the president of US soccer, Carlos Cordero, resigned a day later. Major sponsors of the federation criticised the position taken by US soccer. The women's team played with their shirts inside out, thus hiding the US soccer badge in their recent games in the She Believes Cup, which, by the way, they won. And the People's Princess herself, Megan Rapino, called the language used unacceptable. Fair play. Well, you may be pleased to learn, ahead of the case, which was due to start on May the 5th, but who the fuck knows at the moment... That wording has now been retracted and the argument of US soccer has reverted back to one held previously, which claims that the women actually receive more in total than the US men's team. They argue that the women's team play in a structure that gives them more guaranteed compensation, though the counter-argument to this is that's because they play more games, probably because they actually qualify for tournaments, and indeed they win them. Brand new president of the Federation, Cindy Parlocone, said that the words used in that legal filing were as a result of a fundamental breakdown in our internal process, like fucking hell, yeah, branding the language used as an error and offensive. She's not sorry enough to pay them properly, though, it seems. So that's all from me this week, but I'll be keeping my eye on this and everything else across the world of sport, if indeed there is still a world of sport, as we continue into... I don't know, I've said sport too many times now, but sport again. More next time. Hello, Mickey here. Sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure, but I just thought, as you're having such pleasure listening, you might be up for helping us out in making more content that champions women. That's easy to do. You can just bob along to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue, and any spare bunch you might have found in your pocket down the back of the sofa, feel free to chuck it to us. Much obliged. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster fought its way and then erupted onto our scenes this week? This week we watched Pompeii, which is pretty recent. I don't know, 2014. Jen and I just had a little conversation off mic because uh, I was like, who directed it? Because I've got a joke about it definitely not being Paul Thomas Anderson. And <laughs> Jen said, oh, it's Paul W.S. Anderson. And then it became clear that she thought it was Paul Thomas Anderson. That's the guy who did things like There Will Be Blood and Magnolia, uh, as opposed to this, which is... I, I'd like to see Wes Anderson's version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah. just, just think well, this seems exactly like the kind of thing he would have made, so I'm really surprised to learn it's not the same guy. <laughs> So yes, Pompeii, gladiator with volcanoes, uh, or a volcano is probably the best way to describe this. I mean, it is so like gladiator. I did start to wonder whether it's impossible to make something with gladiators in it that isn't like gladiator. Perhaps 
if that makes sense. Because, like, in Gladiator, you had the Spaniard, which is Russell Crowe. But here you have the Celt, who is Kit Harrington, who uh, basically is taken into slavery, becomes a gladiator, starts off in the provinces, where he, which is too good for. This is all gladiator stuff, and then ends up being taken to Pompeii for this big fight. That pans out much like Gladiator pans out. And um, also all in, of his family are killed first. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But oddly, unlike Gladiator, it's bloodthirsty, but it doesn't have any actual blood in it, which, uh, as you know, I object to when violence with it's things got that are quite violent. a lot of blood in it. It's got a lot of a lot of things where people have a sword swiped at them and then they fall down dead, but you don't actually see the injury inflicted. Like whereas Gladiator, that. you have people being Gladiator, you have people being cut in half by. I'm not into violence, but like I repeatedly say, if you're going to have violence, you need to show what the what violence is. You can't do it in an A-team style. Oh look, they've been stabbed, but now they're just lying on the floor. So. It doesn't even have the courage of its convictions where Gladiator did. So I I wasn't a big fan. Let's leave that there. It's definitely very PG as Gladiators go. Yeah. I thought there was going to be some nobbing and there wasn't. No time for nobbing. No. Uh, do but you know what the anyway. difference between uh, Milo, the Celt, and Russell Crowe's Gladiator, though? He can talk to horses, which is good because he doesn't fucking talk to humans. He's a horse whisperer. He's a horse whisperer. But unlike Russell Crowe, he is more audible than a whisper when he does talk. Like he doesn't... Didn't really work. I have but... a fact here that I never... Th- <laughs> I never thought this fact would be relevant, seriously. And I was just talking to Claire Allen about how I, fa- I went round and I took a load of books that I've been meaning to t- read for ages off the shelf. And in amongst them is uh, the autobiography of Ulysses S. Grant. And I was like, that's a bit niche. I don't think anybody needs me to talk about that. But in it, there's a fact about, apparently, it's like a lost thing. Apparently, something that you gauged a man's character by was whether or not he was good with horses. Because if horses trusted him, then you should be able to trust him. And that's something that we've just lost as a means to gauge people now. Because obviously, we don't have horses. You say that, but it was absolutely on my Tinder profile when I had one. Was it? <laughs> Must be good with horse horses. Horse whisperer. Yeah, yeah, totally. Absolutely. Anyway, so he ends up going to Pompeii, um, where he meets Jared Harris, who is taking some of that sweet, sweet Hollywood money. And I don't blame him, because he's just, this is awful. Um, and then he meets this posh girl. And so she... He meets her because, like, there's a horse that's injured and he puts it out of its misery. And she's like, she says, oh, it's the, it was the kindest thing to do. And everyone seems really surprised. And I couldn't quite work out. In the old days, they had people not work that out. I can't imagine that, that in a time like that, that they go, oh, it's just let our animals suffer. It seemed a bit of a weird time to be, like, humane when you're sort of trafficking hundreds of thousands of slaves who you've just killed all of their families, and you're like, oh, he's fucking killed a horse, he's bang out of order. Don't like that at all. He loves horses. Yeah. Cassia loves horses. It's meant to be. Anyway, so, okay, so, so it all builds up to this big fight which is absolutely, positively a rip-off of one of the greatest scenes ever. I'm going back to Gladiator, which is the Battle of Carthage in Gladiator, which is the one where they're not supposed to win it, but they do. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, where they're all on the chariots. 
And it's, there's even a callback to that in this, in which they go, someone in the audience, Riley says, hang on, didn't we win the whatever battle it is they're doing, the, the massacre of the Celts? So it's like, I don't know, it's like they've gone, literally watched Gladiator. Oh, God, that's a good idea. Write that down. Write that down. <laughs> hang um, on, um, when you said someone in the audience, did you mean evil genius Kiefer Sutherland? Oh, my Channeling God. Boris Karloff. I haven't even got to that yet. I think what he's channeling is his own dad in um, The Hunger Games. But I just don't think he's doing a very good job of it. It's very camp. It's and very American. Camp. It's crazy American. Imagine if he'd been played by Daniel Day-Lewis. If it actually was by that other bloke. It would have been great. Yeah. Now, I'd like to play. know why I wrote I'd really like to know why I wrote Keith Sutherland is Deborah Maiden in my notebook. Letting <laughs> <laughs> someone the Dragon's Den thing, yeah. No, I know what it is. It's because he's he's talking about, at one point he goes, no, I am not interested in investing because Jared Harris is pitching him this business that he wants to build in Pompeii. Um, anyway, we haven't mentioned that the love interest in this is Emily Browning, otherwise known as Dead Wife. And there's also a bit oh, yeah. of Carrie Ann Moss, but she really doesn't have a lot to do. Um, but the long and short of it is that they're all about to, like, it's all about to go to shit. And then Mother Nature kicks off and the volcano erupts. And the whole rest of it is people just running from collapsing buildings. And the history goes completely bonkers. There was absolutely not lava like those big chunks that were coming out, like bombs. And a boat didn't crash through the centre of Pompeii. Well, that I think what you need to realise, Hannah, is that when this was released in cinemas, rather than going straight to video, which clearly it should have done, <laughs> when it was released in cinemas, it was 3D. So that's why they had to chuck all the lava and the boat and the water. So right. It like it was coming at you. Fucking hell, imagine paying to see that in 3D. So then basically it all becomes... A- about, like, trying to save Emily Browning, dead wife, from Kiefer Sutherland, who is, like, fucking Rasputin in this. He, like, dies about four times and keeps coming back. He's, He's like tenacious. Terminator. It's insane. There's another brilliant bit where where the, um, the kind of really sort of kindly black man trope friend that he makes. Who's also the noble her. savage, Hannah. The noble savage, yes who ends up in a fight with Chief Cunt One on Keith <laughs> Sutherland's like, side. And there's a bit where he sort of killed him and then he manages to turn the sword on him, right? And it's so silly because his other hand is literally doing nothing. Nothing. It's actually at one point just resting, right? Anything he'd done with that other hand, anything. If he'd like made a shadow puppet with it and gone, <laughs> over there, dude, that, it would have stopped him dying. But instead, uh, it's just resting there. It's so fucking stupid. And and he is. That, guy is, that guy is called Proculus, which sounds like something a man should get prodded on a regular basis to check he's yeah. alright. He is also completely ripped off from Gladiator as well. Like, it is literally the same film, but really shit, until the volcano comes in, which does rather change the dynamic. But, yeah. It's weird as well, isn't it? Because, like, I saw a programme about Pompeii, I don't know, about ten years ago, and they were talking about, like, how remains were found in Pompeii, like, to try and work out how social groupings worked and stuff like that. And there was a selection of remains that they found in, like, 
what would have been, they think, like a barn or an outhouse. But there was like, because of things that were found with them or... I don't quite know how it worked, but they worked out that one of them was like a really, really huge bloke, which probably would, they're saying, might well have been a gladiator or a slave. And then there was like a wealthy woman and then children. And and I thought, to be honest, anything that was just about those people stuck in that room would have been better than what we watched <laughs> for like two hours, to be honest. Some of the CGI, it was bad. And it's always the same thing. It's always when people are running away from a collapsing building. That's always where you spot it. It just... And there's got to be better ways of doing it. Like, that's the, the thing that these things always fall down on, on the CGI. It's running away rare, from buildings. In a rare moment of defence for this film, I, I think that is possibly because it was made for 3G and 2D right. and is not, not 3G. Not I mean, 3G. It, it was clearly made with 3G. But that's yeah. why Jen had problems with buffering. <laughs> yeah, certainly. <laughs> um, I've got to say, Jen, there were some cracking Brexit analogies in there. Just like when both Keeper Sutherland and Proculus were just like, like, nasty, nasty, nasty. And as soon as the tables turned, went, please, why would you do this to me? Don't you know who I am? Yeah, it doesn't matter, Britain. You know that you, you, you're not enjoying something when you really start to, like, notice things like how close she stands to him all the time. And you're like, he would fucking stink. There is no twist oh, about yeah, it. He I would absolutely that. stink. Hey, but Hannah, his character doesn't stink. Well, it kind of does. Do you know, Kit Harrington did, uh, hosted SNL once and was asked about this film. And he said it was a worse disaster than the disaster it was depicting. Um, <laughs> which I think is, is a decent, uh, well-humoured way of, of dealing with this. Because, yeah, this is bad. Agreed. Pretty I mean, bad. I, get, I get why they went to him. Because, like, he can do all that fighting and shit because of Game of Thrones. But, I mean... I actually saw Kit Harrington in a play late last year, and he was really, really good in it. But even if he was going to be really good in this, there's, there was there's no point in it. It must have I, taken ages for him to learn his four lines. Can yeah. I can I objectify him horribly and talk about his six pack for a minute? Yeah, that sure. was not like that wasn't real. That was paint. That like if you want to talk about bad when CGI. You first see him, that is not part of your body, pal. You're not fucking fooling anyone. Apparently he did transform his body for the role. That is not part of his body. <laughs> that is not mm. real. I don't believe it. Is it like Phoebe Waller-Bridges at the, some award ceremony where she got them to paint them on? <laughs> this is not very interesting, but I did see... Uh, like when they did Twilight, they did paint a six pack on Robert Pattinson. They yeah, do do done. it. They do it's do done. it. Yeah, a sparkly one because obviously he's a sparkly vampire. Because he twinkles. <laughs> he twinkles. He glitters. He does. I like the fact that you said, "Can I objectify him?" And then basically you went, "Yeah, that's not what he looks like." That's like completely the opposite. The opposite. Obviously. Yeah. All right. Got me on a technicality there. You turned him <laughs> into a human. Rather than the other way round. He's fit though. Oh, there you go. She's back. She's back in the room. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, that was. I mean, I say that was my opinion on it. That was. I I probably can only imagine anybody who watches this would would come to the same conclusion. Yes. Very Titanic-y as well, isn't it? It's trying to be Gladiator and Titanic. The music's very Titanic-y. We've got uh, we've got Kate and Leo. Uh, there's a real life story behind it that is, you know, unavoidably tragic. Uh, I've got to say, 
I did like that they didn't give it a happy ending because I was like, they could do yeah. it's been so shit, but they didn't. They went with it. That pissed me off. Oh. Because if you're going to be that the shit... the made it. If you're going to be that shit, at least give me a happy ending. Like, come on. But it must be said that there were, because uh, obviously a lot of the Ash preserved bodies, there were some embracing bodies found at Pompeii. Which is what happens at the end. Yeah. They don't even they don't even get a bang. They just Have you, know, have you ever been to Pompeii? No. I have not, but I have got a Virgin Mary statue made from the volcanic rock of Pompeii and covered in shitloads oh, of really? litter because my brother knows me very well. <laughs> I've actually been twice. And saying that now seems like I'm going, well, I've actually been twice. Do you remember but when I we went... used to be able to travel? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I went once about 10 years ago uh, and then I went to a wedding in Sorrento and I was with some people who hadn't been and we went and it was August the 1st and it was so unbelievably hot the Pompeii was basically people just crawling along going have you got water it was just awful so um, I can't actually remember much about the second time I went but it is great it's worth a visit but can I just ask you it's actually... quick, quick poll the second time yeah. you visited Pompeii versus this film, which is the better experience? <laughs> oh, the second time I visited Pompeii. All right. To be fair, to be fair, I did I did get uh, an ice cream afterwards. Not an ice cream. I don't like them. But uh, yeah, I did get a beer afterwards. I got an ice cream afterwards, which I don't like, and it was still a better no, experience than watching this film. <laughs> Just... People watching this film, just people crawling along going, I need to rinse well, out my eyes. Well, actually, as I, stepped, as I stepped out, I got hit by a speeding car. <laughs> I ended up hospitalised for three months and it was still a better experience than watching this film. All this time we've been recording, listeners, Hannah has actually still been trapped in Pompeii. OK, let's total up. I've done very badly this week. Very badly. All of my references are too modern, sadly. I think I've got five. I think I've got four. I have one, two, three, four. Shall I go first with my five? Okay, pet survives carnage. I reckon the horse made it. No, it died. He broke his neck. No. No, the horse horse at the end. end. Oh, okay. I thought uh, you yeah, meant the one he. On, dreamer. I thought you meant the one he put out of his misery, and I I watched it and I thought, oh, pet doesn't survive carnage. No, uh, well, she was like, oh no, it's he. He was, like, oh, it's too heavy with both of his arm, and she was like, run, run yeah, white horse. Right. Uh, Fair enough. I reckon, I reckon it made it. Allow me some semblance of hope in these like gloomy times, Hannah. Uh, nature, you cruel mistress, obs, damn bosses. I mean, fucking slave owners, what they like. <laughs> <laughs> Who the thunk it? Mid-disaster punch-up, like just constantly, just loads of punch-ups. Uh, farewell, major landmark. Pompeii, if you were wondering. Uh, I think that's it. Was it a major landmark and did we say farewell to it? There was a Pompeii amphitheatre. We said goodbye to Pompeii. Which yeah, I but think... I've been, I've been to the Pompeii amphitheatre. It's still there. I mean, it's it's not the same though, is it? They've rebuilt it. Would it be the same now anyway? I just want to throw that but out. No, there. it's not been rebuilt. It's just in ruins. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Pink Floyd did a thing there, there, didn't they? Did the, was that live from Pompeii? Was that Pink Floyd? I don't know. 
I'm just saying things now. Historically, anyway, at the time, it was very much goodbye, major landmark. Although there was no one there to like mourn it at all. Uh, maybe Rome thought that Pompeii was quite a big landmark. Yeah, I'm having it. I'm having it. <laughs> Fair do. That's it. Oh, is that it? Yeah. Okay. I've got thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. Well, I mean, outrun lava. Yeah, everyone died in this film. Seems pretty simple. Everybody died in this film. I'd have had to have more six-pack than Kit Harrington to survive this, and that's just not going to be a thing. We could paint it on Um, for you, though. We could paint it on. We We could could paint paint it on on for you, like Kit Harrington. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, we're going to be shut in for a long time, so, yeah. (laughs) When we three meet again, we will Uh, paint Hannah. Something to look forward to. Yep. Well, I'm sure there's a YouTube tutorial somewhere I could get into. Um, if only and if we there's more... not, we can make one. <laughs> I've, I've ticked if only we have bought substandard kit, but I don't know why. Because, I, I mean, because to be, <laughs> to be fair, he's moaning and he's saying that the Coliseum needs fixing up. But even if they had fixed it up, I don't think any amount of work would have, would have uh, sustained that. So now I'm crossing that off. My eyes and CGI, which we've already discussed, and screaming cowardice. Because as Mickey said, even the bad guys died like like just Please, don't you know yeah. who my mum is? Yeah, exactly. So I'm down to three. Jen. Okay. Piss poor English accent. Her dad's English accent is not good. Um Jared Harris. Yeah. Jared Harris is English. He's English. Is he? Yeah. yeah. His accent's his awful. His accent's great. Keith Sutherland's accent's terrible. I didn't even notice his was bad. I noticed that the dad's was bad. His English is... Oh, well, if Keith Sutherland's is bad, then I'll have it. Um, I think we need to stop, Jen. How have you not seen something with Jared Harris in it before now? I didn't recognise him at all. Great stuff. I I was just like, who is this man? Mad Men? No, I haven't. Have you seen The Crown? I have seen seen The Crown. crown. Who's he in The Crown? He's her dad. He's George VI in The Crown. Oh! He's got a shit accent in that as well. No, that's just... That's that's just, just he's got a shit in his accent. <laughs> Sorry, Jared Harris. It's just how he talks. <laughs> I think they've done that Sean Maguire thing on him again. Anyway. Um, <laughs> right. Do you remember when Julia Rayside told us that she fancies him after he's hanged himself in Batman? <laughs> wow. Anyway, um, an event that is too important to cancel. Yes. The games. The games because that that place is a crumbling. Can you smell burning? Yes, I can. It's a volcano. Uh, and sobbing child, but I'm actually not sure that he sobs at the beginning. He just looks forlorn. He doesn't sob. He's very he's, quiet. Yeah, deadly quiet. Three then. What about Brexit analogy, mate? I didn't think of one, so I don't think I can have it. Okay. It's okay, and then it's shit. I don't. That's like every week. I, I'd say. Mm. Well, I mean, I could just say this, but it's it's cheating, really. I I didn't think of one. Soz. Jen, do you want to trade something off your list for something off my list? And I'll take Brexit analogy off you. Interesting. I'm not sure how I feel about this ethically, but uh, it it probably shouldn't go to waste. Well, I tell you what, we're going to be shut inside for a long time, so let's have a proper full-on conference meeting that goes up for three days. <laughs> yeah. 
and we'll we'll fill the listener in when we have to say. Okay, good idea. And, and, and me as well. I'm not sticking around for this bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Standard issue for all women.